This is episode 30 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and today I am speaking with Professor Dave Walton about the future of physiotherapy. Thank you for letting us interview you today. Well, Can thanks we for coming. Start by having you introduce yourself and a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. Uh, my name's Dave Walton. I'm a currently an associate professor here with the School of Physical Therapy at Western University. I, uh, I graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Physio, which you could still break into the profession at that time, back in 1999, uh, also from here at Western. Uh, have since that time completed a Master's and a PhD. Um, worked as a clinician uh, for about 10 years, all total, really before uh, going full-time to uh, to academia and I've now been here at Western in my current role for nine years. And so today we're talking about technology and the future of physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. So before we jump into what's on the horizon, what has been the evolution of our profession since you've been practicing? Right, so to think back, so it's been 20 years now uh, since I graduated. One of the most obvious changes is that the movement towards privatization of physiotherapy has uh, really continued quite unabated, I will say, since, uh, since the mid-90s, early to mid-90s. And uh, there was a time when I graduated that we were still more public than private, I want to say. I, I'd have to go back to look at the numbers, but it was just closer to a balance, whereas now I think we're, we're well more now private uh, than public. I want to say something like 65, 35, or 70, 30. So that's been a big, uh, a big change. And what has happened as a result is that many of our new grads are sort of being tossed out into a world where they are not only meant to provide good physical therapy services, but also try to compete in a sort of free and open market. And that second part, as far as the skill set goes, is something that I don't think we've done a really good job of developing at the academic level. What do you think needs to change at the academic level for that to happen? Well, I think every program now has a dedicated sort of business or entrepreneurship type of of course, and uh, certainly that's a good step. One of the things that we, or things that we could do more, would be to integrate that whole the whole sort of business component to physiotherapy care across all of the different courses and settings that uh, we educate in, rather than having it sort of sectioned off as a, you know, a little piece of physio education, given that most of our graduates are now going to be out in the private world, when we put a case together where that is meant to learn a clinical technique, we should probably include in there something about the funding that this person has available or something like that so that, um, you know, our, our graduates can start to sort of think in those terms. I think another interesting idea would be to look for opportunities for grad, for, um, uh, PT students to take on clinical placements that are more on the sort of business development side of things rather than just the direct patient care. That would require some change, not just at the academic level, but also at the regulatory level. But I think that would be a nice opportunity for students to then get a bit of a head start before they head out into uh, private practice. What innovations are you most excited about that you think can have the largest impact on rehab? Hmm. It's, it's an interesting world to start talking about this because as soon as we start talking about innovations, regardless of whether it's technology-based, whether it's uh, models of service delivery, we inevitably 
we'll have to cross a point where we start talking about, so does that mean the world doesn't need physiotherapists anymore? And so when I answer these kinds of questions, I sort of like to preface it with saying that I don't think we're going to get to a point where society just doesn't need physios anymore, but I do think that we will get to a point where what physiotherapy is and what the physiotherapists do and the functions they fill are going to be very different. So I, I'll preface it before my answer, my answer to your question with that. Um, but I mean, as far as the innovations that are coming, if we just wanted to draw on the technological side, probably one of the most simple ones, but most ubiquitous really is, is sensory sensors, the sensorization of, of humans and, and just of the world and the connected, the internet of things and all this sort of thing. If you just use a really simple example where in the past clients have had to come into the physio clinic, we've grabbed our little plastic two-armed goniometer and we've had people do this and we've measured and we've said there your shoulder range of motion is X. I get a snapshot of that single function, that single movement in this clinical environment at that one point in time. But of course we are all now creating gobs of data, gigabytes of data and uploading that to clouds and now we've got our own sort of personal diaries of motion and of activity and of function that really the whole show me how you can raise your arm here's with my goniometer seems almost so like almost comically antiquated when you think of it that way you know the sense of the accelerometer on my phone would do a better job at giving you a sense of how i move my arm than with the plastic goniometer and yet we still sort of adhere traditionally to the plastic goniometer so I think the, the whole, just the, the, the ubiquity of sensors, and especially as they continue to evolve, they're already very small um, as they now start to become, you know, injectable. And as we start to measure so many things beyond just how many steps you've taken and how many stairs you've climbed, the whole notion of quantifying just physical function is going to dramatically change. So that's, that's a, a simple example to answer your question. There's, there are others, if you're looking for others, I'm sitting right in front of a virtual reality set, uh, setup, for example. Um, we certainly here in the lab, in the Pain and Quality of Life Integrated Research Lab, do see VR as a real opportunity for sort of augmented rehabilitation. Um, again, uh, an example where the physio does not need to be physically in the room with you. I could be sitting here in front of my computer in my office at Western, and my patient could be in Sioux Lookout, and we could be having a bit of a conversation, and they could pop on a VR headset. and. You know, we can sort of suddenly get into a really engaging and immersive world where it requires certain sort of rehab type motions, but in a more fun and engaging environment. That's another example of something that we could really do as, as physios. How much of this do you think is already out there and being used? Uh, well, certainly virtual reality is, is definitely real. Uh, real virtual reality, is that a thing? <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, it's so, it's become so inexpensive now. You can go to your corner store and you can grab a VR headset you can pop your phone into and off you go. Um, and now with the new, uh, the Oculus Quest, as it was just released a few weeks back, um, that doesn't require any of this kind of setup here. You can just pop it on as all self-contained. Um, that, in my mind, that's something that, that physios and, and physio researchers should really be latching onto right now. Sensors, like I say, they, they already exist. Uh, and one of the things that we have yet to do, and I say I use the royal we because there's always examples or exceptions to this, but has we've really yet to harness the value of these big data techniques and analytics that are available now that we're all creating, like say, so much data on a daily basis and 
how well we slept and how much we moved and all what we ate, all these sorts of things. But as, as, as physios, we've continued to sort of focus more on the, can you stand up from this chair, walk over there, turn around, come back and sit down again, or, you know, like use my goniometer example, um, that, uh, we really, we really need to continue to harness these things. One of the fun examples in a sort of real philosophical perspective is when we're, we've always conducted research. Most of us through a post-positivistic lens that says we can't possibly sample everyone in the whole world. And so we go out and we try to randomly sample representative people of the population we're targeting. And we study just that small sample. And then we try to generalize the results to the entire population. And again, that's always been based on this belief that you can't sample everyone. But the truth is we are rapidly approaching a point where we can sample everyone, where we literally will have data on, on almost everyone. And so the whole concept of p-values and confidence intervals all of a sudden become irrelevant because you no longer need to speak in, in terms of probabilities and confidence. You have all of the data on everyone. And while right now that might just be fairly simple metrics, project out 5, 10, 15 years from now and think about what other things sensors are going to be able to, to quantify for us, we need to be having these conversations now so that when those, when those innovations occur, and they will, we are prepared to think about, okay, well, all of a sudden, what does rehab research look like, for example? Maybe I don't need to know what the effect of my little intervention on this sample of people is. What I need to know is what the effect of my intervention on this person sitting in front of me is, and I will have that data, and not just based on how they perform to me sitting in front of the chair today, but how they perform when they're outside of the clinic, how they function with their lives. That is tremendously powerful. I don't know if right now we're ready for, for that tsunami of, of data to come. Do we have to be concerned or at least critical of the quality of the data from those sensors? Because a lot that's, of consumer grade ones are not. Absolutely. And, and that's a huge part of, I think there might be a, a, you know, we might have some conversation at some point about sort of what, what additional education do we need to offer trainees as well as clinicians in order to get to that point. We dedicate a fair bit of time in physio training programs to critical appraisal of research literature. We dedicate almost zero time that I'm aware of in any program to critical appraisal of technologies, sensors, games, all those sorts of things. And so that's going to be a, a critical confidence that we need to develop. Yeah. All right. So you did the Physio Moves Canada project. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that first and yeah. how that kind of relates to everything that we've been talking about in terms of innovations and yeah. What excites you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, that was uh, sort of the big project of my sabbatical that I had was on in 2017. And by that time, I sort of became acutely aware that it had been seven years since I really was in a routine clinical practice. I still see patients through from a research context. Um, but to actually provide direct care for a patient, it had been a large group of time. And if I want to sort of fancy myself a clinical researcher, I started to kind of get a little bit concerned, almost a bit of an imposter syndrome in a way that um, I wasn't entirely confident that what I thought was the realities of frontline practice are still, in fact, the realities of frontline practice. So the sort of big thing I really wanted to achieve there was to just really get embedded again within frontline practice to the extent that I could. But from there, it really got big. Um, we started, I, I really got interested in knowing what clinicians were trying to do out there to kind of push the envelope a little bit. 
what are physiotherapy um, innovations, sorry, uh, and, and, and what do people think of as an innovation? And one of the reasons for that is if we can understand the way people think about what an innovation is, then maybe we can take that and understand, okay, well, what do people think of as sort of traditional physiotherapy then? Because in order for someone to say this is an innovation, you need to have a base from which you can say this is normal, this is innovative. And so we could have went out and said, I want to know what normal physio looks like. But we said, no, I want to go out and see what innovation, what people say are, are innovative. And in understanding that, I know what the boundaries of physio are, so I should be able to sort of zero in on what traditional physio is. I then wanted to uh, also have an opportunity for my own self to get exposure to different contexts and patient populations than I've ever had a chance to interact with. I've really spent the majority of my professional career, with the exception of a few months um, in Australia, here uh, in southwestern Ontario. And so uh, I really wanted to have the opportunity to sort of travel and get a sense of what it's like to provide care to our Indigenous and First Nations communities, to our military populations, to um, elite athletes and things like that. So uh, that's exactly what we did. I, I myself and, and uh, my research assistant, uh, who was also my wife, which worked out really well, um, we zipped out to Newfoundland and for the next two months uh, we traveled all the way across Canada stopped at as many different clinics as we could, um, did interviews very much like this, um, observed intervention, observed just routine clinical care, what happens with the day-to-day -day goings on. We ran focus groups of, of other clinicians in those communities to ask about threats and opportunities and research priorities. And uh, it was, a, uh, it was a, just a tremendous experience. It, it, it not only sort of has given me very different directions in my own uh, research, but has also changed me just as a, as a person as well, some of the experiences that I had. So, based off of what you found there, where do you see the profession going in the next five to ten years? Yeah, <clears throat> so the question is always, do we want, where do we want to go and where do I see us going, right? Um, so we'll start with sort of where, where do I see us going, and I, th there is so much change occurring right now. And when I say that, I must mean broadly. I don't mean in physio specifically, but just 2019. In fact, I, I sincerely believe that the period from probably about 95 to, let's say, maybe 2030, if I was to project out, historians will look back on 100 years from now and we'll, they'll call this a, a period of disruption similar to what the 60s was. Um, that this, the, the information and the digital age that we are currently living in is just a tremendously disruptive period. So I think we're in the middle of it right now. And that is going to bring with it a lot of necessary change, some of it desirable, some of it less so. So some of the examples of less desirable things are going to be the continued um, defunding of, of public physiotherapy services and what that I think is going to force clinicians to do and administrators is to identify different ways of delivering physiotherapy care. I, I truly believe that the days of, of the physiotherapist sort of, you know, going and getting patients up and walking them sort of around the hospital ward, things like that. I think those are, are going away. Um, I, I even think personally that, you know, the days of the physiotherapist sort of sitting by the bedside and watching a patient do their, go through their exercise routine um, is, is probably going away, um, which I'm not saying is really good or, or not so good, but I just think it's, I think it's going to be forced upon us. And, you know, that can either be a, a frightening thing or it can be sort of a potentially exciting opportunity for innovation and change if we're willing to embrace that. So that then, I guess, kind of brings us to the sort of what maybe on the more desirable side might be happening. And I, I do think that if as a sort of collective community, 
physiotherapists are able to sort of rally behind a somewhat um, unified banner and say this is who we are going to be in this sort of new world of care with all of these other professional groups out there who can often deliver at least a part of what we do, usually for a lower cost. Um, so in, in, in these contexts then, here instead is what we're going to be. And I think it's going to require a little bit of a sort of shift in thinking um, where anyway we, we'll get to the point of sort of changing really what the role of the physiotherapist is in that sort of broader continuum or context of healthcare. How does a change like that happen when physio is a profession that is so diverse? We work in so many different mm -hmm. settings and have so many different roles. So how do you kind of narrow that or do you want to narrow that? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question is do we even want to narrow it? Because you're totally right. One of the great things, but also one of the nightmare things about physiotherapy as a profession is that we proudly graduate everyone as a generalist. And as a result, we can go in this direction or that direction or that direction or that direction. And we're sort of, I mean, we're, we're all over the place. Now, one of the great things about that is that really you have an opportunity to guide your own direction, to guide your own future. If you don't like what you're doing right now um, and you find that you know, rehabbing ACL injuries and in horses is more exciting, then you can, tomorrow you can sort of switch gears and, and do that. So there's, there's the, the great thing about that is just the tremendous amount of, of option that we have. But of course, in terms of trying to define the profession or whatever we want to call this, the practice of physiotherapy, if that's even a thing, uh, it's a nightmare, right? Because sort of what is physiotherapy and what isn't physiotherapy? You know, well, why did... How, how or why did dry needling ever become part of physiotherapy is an interesting question. Not that I'm saying it should or it shouldn't be, but it wasn't originally. Somewhere over the past hundred years, it is. When did that occur? And then what is the next thing that's going to happen? And at what point do we say this is or this isn't physiotherapy? Is everything that's a non-pharmaceutical non approach to pain management and mobility, is, that, is all of that physiotherapy? So I think there's some real challenging questions we need to ask ourselves in order to figure out exactly what you just asked me, which is how do you start to mobilize an entire sort of community of 22,000 people in Canada alone towards a slightly more sort of uh, distinct direction where right now we're sort of, we're flying off in all sorts of directions. So in a previous interview of yours, you stated that maybe one way the profession can evolve is using that unique skill set where we're making decisions for care, but letting other people execute that. Mm -hmm. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and again, I don't want to necessarily say that I'm desiring this direction, but I do see one, one possible direction that we could go is if we were to zoom out and we were to look across the landscape right now, just survey our landscape of influence, if you will, I, I'll, I'm going to focus more on the, on the private side, the community-based private side, because now that's where the majority of us practice. And, you know, I could walk out here to the corner of Western and Sarnia Roads, and I'm sure, you know, I've got a pretty good arm. I could probably toss a stone. I might be able to hit a few different providers of, uh, of you know, pain management, for example, or, or um, physical activity or, or health or things like that. And so you look across and chiros and massage therapists and acupuncturists and athletic therapists and um, exercise physiologists and registered kinesiologists. There's, there's so many, there's so much option now for consumers, which from a consumer's perspective is great. 
but it does mean that as physios, we can no longer say, well, we're the university educated folks and surely people are going to want to come and see us because we're so awesome and we do all of these things all at once. I can promise you that if I went out and asked 10 people walking down the street right now what exactly a physiotherapist is and when you would go and see one, you'd get 10 very different answers, which is maybe not, not great. Um, but what's even worse is if I was to ask 10 physios what physio is and when people should go and see one, you'd get 10 very different answers. And so that's, that's part of the issue that I'm getting at here. But again, if we take this sort of zoomed out and we say, okay, there's, there's plenty of option out there for, for people to go and seek care for pain and mobility related problems. There's a definite change in funding structure, uh, whether it's in the hospital setting, whether it's through things like uh, auto insurance or, or workers' compensation. Where can we sort of have the, hold the biggest bang for our buck and really use the skills that we do develop at a university level program? Like we're, we're a six year university program in most cases, right? Um, that's a lot of education. We have a lot of skills that we need to bring with us and use. And so one direction I could see that going would be something like, I guess, you know, the sort of GP version of, of for pain and mobility problems, right? Where you sort of walk into your family health clinic and if you have a weird rash, you sort of turn left to see your family physician. If you have a pain or mobility problem, you turn right to see your family physio. And the physio really, maybe we start to focus a lot on our skills around diagnosis and assessment and prognosis and, uh, and intervention planning. But then perhaps we're not the ones to, exactly as I've said in the past, to watch the clients do the exercise that maybe we then sort of can delegate more of that to, uh, to other providers. And I do think at times, uh, depending on who I talk to and as I, depending on where my mind is, that if we were to adopt that role, it might be an opportunity to sort of evolve as a profession in the eyes of the public as well. Because now people actually do have a family physiotherapist who they know and they trust and they respect and they've provided care for their parents and they're going to also provide care for their kids. Um, that in the same way that the sort of GP has, been, has continues to be sort of valorized in, uh, in Western society, could the, could the GP, only this time P standing for physiotherapist, um, hold a similar sort of position of, of respect in the medical context? Sort of an interesting idea. Has to, yeah. has to, and and we, we we would have to. I don't think right now we're ready for primary care provision. Most physio programs that I'm aware of do a really good job on focusing on biomechanical assessment and and prognosis and things like that, but don't do a very good job on things like sleep hygiene and diet and nutrition and lifestyle modification. All of those things that I think would be part of providing true primary care. You said that you've heard many different answers from the public and from physios about what physiotherapy is. Mm. What's your answer to that? <laughs> uh, so before I answer this question, I have to, <laughs> so part of what happened to me after Physio Moves Canada is I got exposed to a lot of different thinkers, people who think very differently in the physio field. You know, I grew up grew up as a physio in much the same way that most clinicians probably do. And I took the same courses most people did and I got my FCAMP designation and I sort of saw the world through a certain lens. And then as a researcher, I grew up again very much the way most sort of quantitative researchers would. I'm a very, I was a very quantitative focus and, uh, you know, really focused on measurement, for example. And that's kind of where much of my, my expertise continues to lie. And it wasn't until after I started 
blogging a bit and writing more about some of my experiences with the Physio Moose Canada that I started to get contacted by people who are physios or trained as physios, but since moved on and kind of came back and now brought back with them philosophy and social science and, and engineering for that matter and really different ways of sort of looking at the world. And so I'm going to lean a little bit on some of the great conversations I've had with some outstanding physio philosophers and disability scholars over the past couple of years to try and answer your question about what exactly is physiotherapy. And the way I try to answer that question sometimes is I try to think of what is the opposite. What would be the opposite of physiotherapy, right? And so to that end, I start to think, well, I suppose it would be uninformed, um, completely passive, maybe delivery of, of sort of very routinized care, but that's not in any way person specific. So if I start to think of it that way, then maybe I start to sort of broadly define physio as more sort of a sort of strong clinically reasoning, critical thinking profession that is meant to be focus on providing the right care for the right person at the right time, especially when their problems pertain mostly to pain and mobility. However, I'm not entirely convinced that the way we have created physiotherapy knowledge and conducted physiotherapy research to this point has actually been conducive to that whole idea of providing the right care for the right patient at the right time. There's the idea of, you know, just even creating things like guidelines or even just the whole notion of generalizable cause and effect or that any intervention will have, you know, more effect than less on a given person. I think all of those are a bit they're all a bit weak. They're all a bit problematic at times. There's a, there's a need for some of those types of, you know, randomized trials and things like that. But at the end of the day, I'm sure as, as clinicians, we don't treat somebody based on the results of the latest RCT. We treat them based on what they're telling us right now sitting in front of us. And that information is never captured in a clinical trial. And so, you know, I think we have a bit of a sort of schizophrenic personality uh, problem at times in the, in the profession, which is, so what exactly are we? What are we meant to be? And a big question again is like, where's the end? Or I come back to my earlier comment is like, how do we know we've sort of finished physiotherapy? Maybe that's another way of trying to define it is how do you know when you've reached the end? I mean, everyone could use a little bit more exercise, I suppose. Should we keep going a little bit or are we done? You know, those are really, they're important questions. They're challenging questions. And what I think is amazing to me is when you ask me that question, I can't just give you a simple, this is what physiotherapy is. And, and I think about this a lot. I would think there's lots of other people out there who probably don't think about it as much who would have an even harder time. It's an interesting sort of side note then if we look to our occupational therapy colleagues, they've actually done a really good job from my perspective, my outsider perspective, of defining sort of at least the theories that they use around occupational therapy and the intervention that they provide. Whereas in physio, we sort of just kind of adopt things as it comes along. We say, yeah, okay, we'll call that physio now, which is a bit of a problem. You spoke about that face-to-face -face interaction with someone and what they're telling you and how that affects treatment. Um, thinking about that and outcome measures from that standpoint, mm. do you think that they have a use in a clinical setting and that they can help to give you some of that information? Or do you think they're kind of more important from the research and statistics standpoint? Mm. Mm. So first of all, then to answer your question, I'm going to start by saying I grew up as a measurement scientist. <clears throat> so clearly there's something I like about measurement, but there's a lot I don't like about the outcome measures we routinely use. And it's really easy for me to sit here and 
my little lab here at Western and criticize you know the work that other people have done. I don't mean to do that because I've created my own tools in the past and they're not perfect either. There is a use for outcome measures when they're used on a patient-centric basis. I truly believe they can open up conversation. There's a lot of items on most outcome measures that if you were to take the actual form or get the actual printout or whatever of what that patient answered to each of these individual questions and said, oh, I see you you circled a four to this particular question stating, you know, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. Can we explore that a little bit further? That is an ideal use of an outcome measure. And it lets the patient know that you actually look at what they did and you didn't just hand it in and it ends up on their file somewhere. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience of going to a healthcare provider yourself and you circle a bunch of numbers out in the waiting room and then the clinician asks you the exact same questions that you just answered. But if it's, if it's used properly on a patient-centric basis, it can open up some really interesting conversation, especially around things as challenging as pain or mental health problems. We don't have a good language for that, but sometimes these well-created forms uh, or questionnaires do have good language that we can use. And then, of course, the value of, of doing that is that you do still have the overall form. And that can also then be fed, if we could ever get to the point collectively, that we could feed into a sort of you know, grand physiotherapy database of actually being able to sort of show that we do have uh, beneficial outcomes. Again, I will say that the outcome measures as they're commonly available right now, the ones that are commonly available right now, they can be a bit problematic if you're using them to make decisions based on an overall score for an individual patient, because they assume that all items are of equal importance to all people, which is probably not true. Um, but again, if you use them the way they're meant to be used, which is to look individually and say, oh, I see you said this here, but this over here doesn't seem to be a problem. Does that sound right? To just, you know, to start to sort of guide your, your interventions, I think they can be tremendously powerful that way. And then again, like I say, we can feed them to a grand database and then the statisticians amongst us can also say, and, and you know, look what benefit physio is having. How do you get around the fact that most people just hate filling out forms? Yeah, we create better forms for one thing. It's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that goes back to my earlier comment. I think it's a lot of them are not, are not super great and uh, some of them are quite ambiguous as well. There's some wording problems for sure in, in some, but that's... We'll get there. Um, I, I will also say, however, that if we look at this from a really critical lens, why do we even ask the questions? So if I wanted to know something about how well my person's lower extremities are functioning, my patient's lower extremities are functioning, I can ask them to fill out a form that says, over the past week, how much difficulty have you had walking, running, climbing stairs, jogging, getting up from a chair? Or I can look at the sensors that they have and will continue to have built into themselves, into all the devices that they carry around, which will actually not force them to rely on their recall of what they've done over the past week or two, but will actually give me a diary of how much they walked and how many stairs they climbed and how fast they moved and all those sorts of things. So again, I actually do see a way, a, a time where maybe we change the reliance, or at least we change the nature of what outcome measures are collecting because I no longer need to ask you how much trouble you've had doing things. I can now see it in real time. But maybe I start to focus more on questions around your attitudes and your thoughts and things like that. And those, again, are opportunities to open up conversation. So we've spoke about the diversity of this profession. Mm -hmm. Going the opposite way, what about 
physios specializing in different areas? Do you think that we should be similar to the medical profession? Mm. This is definitely an opinion question, so this will be my own opinion now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not in any way representative of Western University or anyone else. <clears throat> um, I think there should be uh, a better path towards specialization. You know, as we know, we, we do have a path towards specialization right now, and currently CPA administers that. And it, it, it isn't seeing huge uptake, um, probably for a variety of reasons. Not that it's a bad program, it's just it's, I, I don't think the return on investment is there just yet. I personally am currently at the position where I'd say, why do the universities not offer an option of specialization, sort of like the medical model? where we can have our physios come and they can do their four-year undergraduate degree and maybe we use that time to better effect, for one thing. We use our two years, two and a half years, depending on where you are, and I'm speaking now about every province other than Quebec because they have a different system, um, to really focus on developing the competencies to do physiotherapy and to be a physiotherapist. And for those who are keen to just sort of work as a generalist following that, they're done and they're ready to go out. Those who want to then specialize, very similar to the medical model, can we not offer internships and additional training? There's no reason we can't for those who want to maybe specialize into more of the neuro, the ortho, the pain, the cardio, animals, whatever it may be. I'm not sure why we couldn't do that. In my mind, I'm not sure if this is going to be one of your future questions, but that would be a preferable direction over a DPT direction. I know some people will say that, I think we all consistently agree that two years of physio training is no longer adequate to teach all of the competencies and skills and knowledge that, that clinicians need. So some are saying, well, we can't go backwards and do a four-year undergrad degree, which is what I went through. The only thing we can really do now is go forward. And so if we go to a DPT now, it becomes a three-year program, which actually is a seven-year university program. And I'll just admit, I'm not convinced that you need seven years of university training to be a good physiotherapist. However, I think for those who want the option of the specialization year, it should be presented to them. And it would be great if we could get into a world of paid internships and co-ops and things like that. Again, there's no reason why we, we couldn't. We're, we're so private now out there. There's a huge opportunity. So that's, that's my answer, my own personal opinion, as I, I would like to see at least an option for specialization. If we specialize, though, do you think there'd be a lot of overlap between them? Like you were saying, like pain, ortho, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I feel like those have to go together, right, if you want yep. to treat effectively. No, I, I think you're right. And, and this is, those would be decisions beyond me, is sort of how do we, again, as a, as a, as a collective, uh, come together and, and say, okay, what are the specializations that you know, we should focus on as physiotherapists and are distinct enough that it makes sense that someone might be, you know, the neuro rehab specialist or someone might be perhaps the pain specialist or something like that. Um, but that's, like I said, those, are, those would be broader conversations. I think we first need to go right back to your earlier question, which is let's settle exactly what physiotherapy is first, and then we can start to have these conversations about what <laughs> specialization arms exist. Can you tell us a bit about the areas of research that you're involved with and some... Sure recent developments with those. Absolutely. Oh boy, now you got to my, my favorite parts. <laughs> um, yeah, so here, uh, so, so my lab is called the Pain and Quality of Life Integrative Research Lab. Uh, I've got uh, 15 different students here, uh, thesis-based students, and we work on a lot of different projects. I try to sort of break them down into three broad categories. Uh, one, as I mentioned earlier, is measurement. 
And so we do a lot of measurement work here trying to understand how better to measure something as subjective and invisible as pain or well-being or satisfaction or whatever it is we think might be important. And that comes from my own personal belief as a sort of critical measurement theorist that what you measure is what really gets resourced and what gets focused on. And so measurement is tremendously powerful and we want to make sure that we're measuring the right things. And so we do a lot in that area. We do some mechanistic work. Um, and so, for example, we have a, a large sort of ongoing longitudinal cohort study. We're trying to understand the genesis of chronic pain following acute trauma. So why is it that two people can be in the same car at a stoplight and that car can get hit from behind and despite experiencing the exact same inter, uh, trauma, those two people can take very different sort of post-traumatic trajectories. If we can't sort of look to the magnitude of the mechanism itself, we need to look to the person. That's sort of what our belief is. And so there we look at a lot at um, the biological. So we have, uh, we look at, at blood, saliva, hair, stool markers. Um, we look at, at psychological uh, markers as well. And now we've done a lot more and more recently on the social side of things. And in particular, we're trying to get sort of into the pre-trauma history, um, pre-life history, um, adult stress, as well as early life adversity to try and see if we can figure out how those things might influence your response to trauma. So mechanisms is another piece. And then this whole idea of knowledge mobilization. And so we do some educational research here. Um, we do, uh, we, we explore sort of what, what systematic reviews can tell us and what they can't tell us, um, who's marginalized and who's privileged by, you know, the results of guidelines and systematic reviews. So we do a lot of that sort of knowledge mobilization piece as well. So measurement mechanisms and mobilization is how I try to break it down. But of course that encapsulates a whole lot of different projects, like I say, including the tech side, um, including the, the measurement side, including we've got some genomics, we've got microbiomics, we've got proteomics happening. So lots of sort of different kind of pots that are circling here in the lab. Have you found anything in terms of biomarkers that might help predict persi persistent pain? We have, anything? we have, but uh, yeah, to borrow a line from Top Gun, I could tell you, but then I'd have to shoot you. <laughs> uh, yeah, we do have a, uh, so we actually have a provisional patent right now on a new, um, panel of five blood markers that sort of when all present kind of together in sort of certain relative abundances. Uh, these are all, these are mostly protein markers as well as, well as one, uh, one hormone. And uh, that seems to sort of assign people more likely to the sort of higher risk category. But, but even that is such a, such a slow, like small slice of this like huge pie because there's some of us who just naturally have these biomarkers high. There are some who sort of these markers maybe spike or, or decrease in response to trauma. And so it's, it's a good step. It's a good first step. And I do see a, a time in the not distant future where physios are going to start to learn more about these things because we're actually looking right now at taking those blood markers and translating them into saliva markers, which is what's happening right now, in fact, as we speak. Um, and salivary analysis can now be done at, at the bedside, at point of care. It takes just a couple of minutes. Cool. Yeah, so that might that might come down the pike. Yeah. All right, and then you've been involved in the creation of the first master's program mm -hmm. for interprofessional pain management. Can you tell us a little bit about the program and how it came to be created? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's been a several year process. We are super excited to have gotten this far, but it's a very non-traditional approach to education from a university perspective, and Western being a very a fairly traditional institution it's been it's been a challenge there's been a number of sort of hurdles we've had to clear and uh, we have through perseverance mostly it is a what's considered a competency-based approach to education and 
The easiest way I can try to explain that is most of us are familiar with course-based education where we all register for a course, we will all sort of walk in the first day, we sit down the seats, there's this kind of underlying assumption that we all start at the same place as far as our existing knowledge goes and we all have three or four months to sort of acquire as much of that new knowledge as we can and we hope that at the end we write some kind of summative evaluation and as long as we got 60 or 70 percent of it right they say good enough and we move on to the next thing uh, even if I maybe could have benefited from another month I don't have that opportunity I have to now move on to the next course in a competency-based education you flip that around and competency-based the time is actually variable but the outcome is fixed so in that case 70% isn't good enough. The expectation really is that everybody scores 100%, but where you might come into the program and you've had, you know, several years of experience in a particular way of practice. So, you know, if the finish line is down here for a competency and pain expertise, you know, you might start here, I might start back here. That's okay because when it comes to, you know, empathic practice, I might start here and maybe you start here and we sort of go at different, different rates. But at the end, we all cross the same finish line. It's very similar to, actually, it's more similar to a thesis-based degree program where, you know, my thesis looks different than your thesis, but at the end, we all say, someone says, yes, you've acquired the competence of, of research. Here, uh, we've identified five more clinical competencies. So in this case, we're looking at pain expertise, empathic practice, um, critical uh, reasoning and creativity, uh, interprofessional collaboration and self-awareness and reflexivity. And so we say at the end of this program, we want all of our learners to have demonstrated adequate mastery of all five of those competencies. And the way they're going to demonstrate that mastery is through the creation of portfolios, a sort of e-portfolio, where they're going to start to now collect evidence of um, routine care. They might collect video interactions with permission of them with a patient. They might then go and watch that back from a third-person perspective, reflect upon what they're seeing, their behaviors, how they responded in certain cases. Did they miss an emotional cue, for example? Write a written reflection. That goes now into their portfolio. They might do that again a, a month or two later and see if this time I picked up on those cues and now they've, shown dem they've demonstrated evidence that they've actually improved. We might capture, you know, we might encourage them to capture outcome measures, but again, we want them to not just take the outcome measure stick it in the portfolio, but to reflect upon it, to look at it, to interpret it, to figure out what it means. Measures of patient satisfaction, measures of therapeutic alliance, um, interactions with experts and all that sort of thing. So at the end of it, what we hope is that we get to a point where the learner and their two mentors, one academic and one clinical, will look at all the evidence they've accrued in this particular competency and say, we think there's enough there that you've demonstrated mastery of this. We're going to slice that off we're going to send that piece of it out to an external examiner who's going to review it, who doesn't know you. They're going to pass a judgment either, yes, clearly there's enough evidence here that this person has mastered this competency, or no, there's not enough here, we need a little bit more time. That's going to come back to us, and then we're going to sort of plan going forward. It's a very personalized approach to education. Proponents will say it's a more effective approach to changing clinical behaviors than what traditional course-based methods are. The detractors will say it's far less efficient, which it clearly is because we have to essentially create a, a personalized learning plan for every person. But in a course like this where we can keep it sort of small, that works. And what we're hoping is some of the elements are going to work really well, and then we can take and sort of move that into our, our MPT training programs as well. Uh, so where can people find out more about you and also about the Masters in Interprofessional? pain management program? Uh, well, I do have a very small social media presence, so if people want to follow at UWO underscore D Walton, they can do that on Twitter and Instagram. 
Um, they can certainly email me, dwalton5 at uwo.ca, or they can go to the website for the Interprofessional Pain Management Program. And I can't remember the exact URL, but we just sort of you know Google uwo.ca and uh, pain management, and it will uh, it'll come up. It's in the health and rehab science uh, degree page. All right. Thank you. All right. Good. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store and stay tuned each month for a new episode.